C was never a particularly elegant language. That's just Pascal by comparison is is a very elegant language. Uh, C was always difficult to parse compared to Pascal. Uh, so there were there were a lot of things working against it. Uh, but one of the things working for it is C from the get go tended to have direct compilers targeting the assembly language of whatever machine you were working on, where Pascal still, for the most part, relied on, on P code with you know a few exceptions. Apple had a compiler to 68K, uh, but almost everybody else was running through P code. And so Pascal was viewed as being slow and interpreted. And the whole object Pascal thing was viewed as being Apple's, Apple's extension. And so it was not, did not get wide use outside of the Apple ecosystem. Welcome to ADSP, the podcast, episode 162, recorded on December 12, 2023. My name is Connor, and today with my co-host, Bryce, we continue our conversation with Sean Parent, and in this episode, chat with him about the history of Pascal, Pascal versus C, other Nicholas Wirth programming languages, and more. We've now skipped ahead over Zach. Happy holidays. You know, the holidays have passed, and I think it should be right before New Year's, what do you call that with respect to the, what are we, Julian, Gregorian calendar? <laughs> One of the two. Uh, you know, so happy, happy New Year's or happy New Year's Eve uh, if you're listening to this now. And the, the original reason that we were bringing Sean back is we will link this at the top of the show notes to this episode, is we did a series of conversations with Jonathan O'Connor where we were talking about a plethora of stuff, but a couple of the episodes focused on Pascal versus Ada versus C. And there was a bunch of stuff that we chatted about, but Sean, you ended up replying to, I believe it was the tweet on episode 154, which was, I think, like part two or part three of that talk. And I'm not going to read out everything because it was about three or four tweets in a row, but you mentioned a bunch of stuff that didn't get mentioned in that conversation. You know, if I if I peruse through this tweet, it's mentioning the Apple Lisa and Mac OS were written in a combination of Pascal and 68K. Um, and then you mentioned a, a bunch of different books, a bunch of different computers, and I'll probably just leave it there and just throw it over to you. And you can start wherever you want to start with, you know, the, the things that we missed and that you were sort of, you know, screaming in your head, how come they're not mentioning this? How come they're not mentioning this? And uh, that's what the next, you know, either part two or part three, or maybe do we one part uh, of this conversation will be. Yeah. So, so combination of that. And then, you, then I was listening to uh, uh, Software Unscripted and and you made a, a, a guest appearance there, Connor, on, on that podcast. And uh, yeah, you mentioned that you were born, I think, in 1990, if that's correct. That is correct, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which just made me feel very old because it made me feel <laughs> I joined Apple three years before you were born. Um, <laughs> I mean, I was. we were interviewing on my other podcast, Raycast, uh, Brian Ellingsgaard, who is 18 which means that he was born in 2005. So, you know. Oh, I don't. There's, I didn't know. No, people shouldn't be that young. I know. So, like, I didn't know how young he was. And then when he said he was 18, I was like, oh, God, that makes So, if you're feeling old about me and I'm feeling old about Bryant, you know, it's just this uh, vicious, vicious feedback loop here. Yeah. Yeah. And, like, like not, not knowing kind of, you know, Pascal and, and that history was, was interesting. Pascal had a had a had a, a pretty significant heyday, and even going all the way back to the Apple II, uh, uh, there was a, 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 an implementation of UCSD Pascal, 
which if you wanted to, you know, program, you know, a, a 68K processor, which was the old Apple II, was a, a, uh, 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 an 8-bit processor. So even doing, you know, 16-bit arithmetic was a challenge. Uh, Steve Wozniak wrote uh, something called Sweet 16, which was kind of a, a, a pseudo 16-bit assembly language uh, uh, that executed in, in uh, 6502 uh, as, a, as a way to to write 16-bit assembly language easier. So Pascal had a bit of a heyday at that time, and there was an implementation um, from uh, University of California, San Diego, UCSD. That's that's what I was thinking that UCSD stood for, but I was like, that can't be, I must be, there must be some other acronym, and that's the only one I know, so that's what I'm thinking of. Uh, but that's, that is what it stood for. Yeah, so, so, so an implementation came out of there, and... And it was uh, based off of something called P-code, where P-code is basically a, a, uh, a bytecode that's easily interpreted. Um, yeah, and yeah. so the idea with UCSD Pascal was you could, it was kind of, you know, pre-Java, Java, it was, you, you could compile uh, your Pascal code down to P-code, and then you could run that P-code any place that had a P-code interpreter, and building a P-code interpreter was dead simple. Um, uh, so it meant that you could write, write Pascal code and have it run basically anywhere. So Pascal itself became kind of the moral equivalent to what we would now think of as, as, as Python, which is kind of an application language. If you needed to, to write software and you weren't, you know, to solve a problem, right, using, using, uh, a programming language as an app, right? So you're writing software to solve a problem as opposed to building a product. Uh, Pascal got got an awful lot lot of use in, in that environment, and it also became a, a, a great teaching language. And then uh, uh, it started to bleed into system languages. So the the original uh, Lisa uh, was written. The operating system itself was written in a combination of Pascal uh, compiled to to 68,000 and uh, 68K assembly language. And then uh, Larry Tesler, who had come out of Xerox Park, worked with Nicholas Wirt, who, who created Pascal, uh, to define object Pascal. And that kind of became the, the language of choice for writing applications on the, on the Lisa. And that same basic model moved into the early Macintosh. So the initial Macintosh, the operating system, was written in a combination of 68K assembly language and Pascal. And then most applications written on top of the early Macintoshes were written in Object Pascal. You know, Object Pascal eventually morphed into, into Delphi. So that's, there's, a, there's a direct lineage there. But what happened was Unix took root in universities and kind of displaced uh, many computer operating systems like VAX VMS got eventually di displaced with Unix distributions. And Unix was very much built around uh, the C language. And so C started getting taught um, uh, uh, in universities and displaced Pascal as a language of choice for, for a teaching language. And there became this large ecosystem of developer tooling uh, built in C. And so there became all these external pressures to to move towards C. So eventually, in you know, kind of early '90s timeframe, Apple transitioned uh, Mac development from 
from Pascal to to C. And Photoshop was originally written in in Object Pascal in 1990, and let's see, probably around 92, I would guess. Uh, Photoshop was ported from Object Pascal to C++, and that was back in Seafront days, where it was you know Bjarne's mm-hmm. compiler that compiled C++ code into C, and then you compile the C code into your your machine code. And wait, so so you said that this shift was just happening because. Unix was gaining popularity, and Unix was associated with C. So, and and you mentioned that C started to get te- taught in universities because of this. But at the same time, Pascal and Object Pascal, or versions of Pascal, were also being taught. So it was just momentum that like Unix and C had more momentum than the the p- family of Pascal languages. Yeah, it was it was largely just momentum. It be, it got to the point where you know it was like, well, I could write this in Pascal, but look, there's all these these tools that do this in C. And you start hiring people and it became hard to hire somebody who knew Pascal. They knew C. So there was this momentum shift. And and from kind of, you know, building an operating system, there were certain things that were, you know, a little bit easier to express in C, right? It was just easier to circumvent the type system and kind of do whatever you wanted. Although, you know, in Pascal, Apple would do that by just dropping into 68K assembly language and 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 writing little snippets like that where, where C was not sufficient. Uh, but you know, for a while there, it was very unclear that C was never a particularly elegant language. Uh, That's Pascal, by comparison, is, is a very elegant language. Uh, C was always difficult to parse compared to Pascal. Uh, so there were, there were a lot of things working against it. Uh, but one of the things working for it is C from the get-go tended to have direct compilers targeting the assembly language of whatever machine you were working on, where Pascal still, for the most part, relied on, on P code with you know, a few exceptions. Apple had a compiler to 68K, uh, but almost everybody else was running through P code. And so Pascal was viewed as being slow and interpreted. And the whole object Pascal thing was viewed as being Apple's, Apple's extension. And so it was not, did not get wide use outside of the Apple ecosystem. You know, to, talking about P code reminds me that, and this is this is uh, going to be embarrassing for Connor and I. During our previous discussion, Connor, I don't think we talked about the fact that I'm pretty certain that the book ADSP Algorithms Plus Data Structures Equals Programs is largely in Pascal, and in fact, I I, I believe that my original encounter with P code was that there's a like a sim- they they write like a little Pascal compiler in the book, um, with a very slimmed down version of the VM, um, and I only just now remember. So clearly, neither of us have read the book that recently. Well, I mean, it because of the conversation with Jonathan, I did go out immediately after recording that. I bought a hard copy book, and it's sitting on my shelf now. And because it was it was when he said that yes, it's considered like a teaching book for Pascal, I was like, oh, that's. Yeah, clearly we haven't read it, but like we didn't even know the basics of what <laughs> I, th- I thought this book was like yeah. a generic, just kind of data structures and algorithms book. But but yes, so at some point we will read it. I did not know that about the P code though. Um, yeah, yeah, I think I think because um, I I I seem to recall that like the Turbo Pascal compiler was like inspired by the the little teaching compiler that was in. The ADSP book. Yeah, there was uh, Turbo Pascal first appeared on 
well, I was going to say Windows, but DOS, I think, would be correct. Uh, so on Microsoft's platform. And yeah, Turbo Pascal was just an amazing, you know, little IDE and compiler that was just blazing fast. And and it was not P-code based, went straight to uh, uh, 68K assembly. Um, Apple, in the early Mac days, they had an, they had their, their Apple compiler, but they also had something called Apple Pascal, which was the same name as, as the Pascal that Apple had on Apple II. But Apple Pascal on a Mac was an interpreted Pascal that was very much centered around kind of, you know, programming as, as an application, right, as opposed, opposed to, to programming an application. So, so same way you would use, use Python today, right? You just want to solve a problem. And it was, was, you know, very slick environment and debugging environment, uh, very easy to use. Um, uh, very limited, I think in your talk, somebody said like you could only have one file for a Pascal program. Uh, uh, not true, but that was true in, in, in Apple Pascal. Um, uh, and that file itself could only be 32K in size. And uh, <laughs> uh, uh, I actually wrote a school project in, uh, in Pascal and ended up writing another tool in compiled Pascal that would process my, my Pascal uh, to minify it so that because I had to turn in the school project in Apple Pascal and so that I could fit more in in the 32k and so <laughs> I turned in two listings one was the unminified code and then one was the code that actually ran which was was greatly reduced and probably a lot less readable <laughs> and a lot less readable also included there was an escape patch so you could execute assembly language and so there were sections of code where I just hand wrote them in assembly language and escaped from Pascal to assembly language in, in <laughs> so, so, so not completely legit, but you know, it was it was interesting. Uh, I think a lot of ideas from Apple Pascal then uh, got carried over into uh, and Turbo Pascal into Think C and then into into MetroWorks uh, Code Warrior. Uh, I think the other thing that damaged Pascal was Nicholas Viert didn't, you know, he did Pascal and then he did Object Pascal. And then from what he learned from Object Pascal, he created Modula 2, or well, first Modula, and then Modula 2, and then, then created Oberon. And so, you know, he was a university guy, and so he was kind of creating this stream of, of little languages, and so abandoning his, his previous work. And so mm. I think that ended up damaging things, right? There got to be the point where, you know, I, I did work actually shipped a product that was partially written in Modula 2 uh, before MetroWorks did Code Warrior. Greg Galanos wrote a Modula 2 compiler for Mac. I probably still have someplace here my, uh, my Modula 2 book. People were doing well. Is it going to be Modula 2 next? Is it going to be, you know, are we doing Modula 2? Or are we doing Object Pascal? Oh, wait, now we're doing Oberon? What's going on? And so, so just that lineage kind of confused the marketplace. And, and hmm. C and C++ had this much more straightforward story. That is a, it's incredibly reminiscent of what, I mean, I've told this story a couple times on the podcast of what Arthur Whitney has done with the, all the different K languages that he's written, that mm -hmm. he'll finish with one even more aggressively, will delete it, completely <laughs> clear all of you know the remnants of it off his workstation or laptop and then move on to the next thing and yeah 
Like that, there's definitely that same kind of effect on the community that's using it. You know, people is K six going to be the final one? Is K seven? Is there going to be another one? And I think every every time that a new one is created, people are more and more cautious to like move to the next one, or do we just keep using what we have? Yeah, and I wonder because the next name that comes to mind is on our Andrew Hausberg out of Microsoft, but he's almost the opposite of that. Has worked on a ton of different like majorly successful languages. But has not. It hasn't been like you know. They he he made sure that the community was gonna you know survive and continue to thrive, and then just moved on to the next project, uh, which I guess is a uh, you know for any aspiring programming language creators, do what Hausberg did and not what not what uh, Verth did or or Whitney or maybe there maybe you know Whitney's working towards a a final one language to rule them all. In which case. Uh, There'll be a bit of an excitement around that. But I, I had no idea that that was kind of the reputation around uh, what Verth was doing. Yeah. Yeah, I've often thought if you take a compiler class in school, you basically learn the Dragon Book, and which is a, a, a great book. But unless you're going to end up building compilers out of school, which very few people will, I think it's it's overkill. And and Nicholas Virt's languages and, and his, his compiler... Uh, books uh, are much simpler. The, the the way Nicholas Viert always built a language, I call it LL1 to the bottom, which is he would define an LL1 grammar, which is you know a very simple recursive descent grammar with no backtracking. If you if you you know if you don't get success on the next token, then your your code is wrong. And his compilers all generated code straight from the parser. He never built an AST. Uh, so he would compile straight from uh, straight from the parser into P code or 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 into assembly language, and so it, it's a much simpler approach if you're if you want to build a a, a quick compiler one off. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really easy to build a little stack machine interpreter and then build a compiler that's recursive descent, and you just generate the code for your own stack machine straight out of your parser. And you don't deal with ASTs, and you don't don't deal with extra complexity. But is is um is a Lisp really that was like it's scheme in S in in the the Dragon Book, right? Uh, yeah, I believe it is scheme in the Dragon yeah, Book. Yeah, is it really that much harder to? I, I mean, I I do think they build an AST, but in that book, but is it really that much harder to parse? Um, oh no, it's not that the, the, the parser in that language is, is that much simpler. It's just that they go through like all the steps of building a compiler mm-hmm. and it's like you build your AST and then you do passes on it for optimizers and you look, the Dragon Book is a thick book and nobody makes it through the Dragon Book in a quarter. I mean, come on, you're not, you're not actually doing that. Uh, where I can't remember the name for, for, for Virat's book, but it's, it's a small, small book. And if you look like, you know, Nicholas Viert built, I think I mentioned it on Twitter, um, a machine called the Lilith, which was basically a Modula 2 machine. What do you mean by he built a machine? Uh, I mean, they were manufacturing and you could order a Lilith and, you know, like you could order an Apple II, you could order a Lilith. It was an expensive machine. And Did he design the chip or he just built, it was just like a... It was a combination of uh, doing the chip design because it was uh, the processor on it basically executed the bytecode coming out of the Modula 2 compiler directly. And so so it had its, its, own, its own custom CPU, its own 
custom hardware. It had a portrait display. It had its own module two based operating system, kind of a, a window based based operating system. Quite an impressive feat at the time. You can you can look up. You can probably find emulators someplace to run run a little. You know, at the time, it's you know I salivated over these things. It was like, oh, I really want a, a Lilith computer, but no possible way that I could afford one. Right? You basically need to be you know in research at a university with some kind of government funding to <laughs> to oh. get a Lilith. Yeah, it was you know one of those those dead ends in the. Uh, in the evolution of, of, of hardware and software. But that's, it's an interesting era because these days you could not, I think, create a, uh, create your own machine <laughs> at the same scale. You need to be. A lot of people kind of do now with FPGAs. So, so, you know, I, I kind of think you could these days with, uh, you, you could basically build your own processor FPGAs and build custom ASICs. The only place where I see people Doing that is kind of emulating old game hardware. But you don't think that uh, that that era in the past was a golden era of hardware and software design, and that we're now in a much more homogenized um, era, in an era where um, the certainly the high end of chips is um, only for are only the high or let me put it way, the high end of computers today. Um, uh, and I don't mean like the most powerful computers, but like, you know, the best computers, you know, the, the, the fo- computers in your phone that are in your laptop, you know, even something like the Nintendo Switch, um, those are produced by gigantic corporations and have huge, huge amounts of investment um, to go into them um, to produce them. Whereas, you know, back in the, the, the 70s and the 80s, um, you, could, uh, y- you could create a... A thing that was a good thing at a much smaller, a much smaller scale. Not quite, maybe in in, in your your garage, but certainly yeah. close. It's interesting in that you know I don't think. Well, it's somewhat the same. It's like you know Steve and Steve right created the the Apple One, you know, famously in the garage, and yeah. uh, you know did the work for the Apple Two as well, um, a very small scale. And there's no way that you would do that today and compete with with a Mac or a Windows box. There's just no way. But at the same time, for them, they were creating something that ultimately would compete with, you know, uh, uh, minis and mainframes. Hmm. And there was no way for them to directly compete with that. Yeah. And surprisingly, the barrier to do, like, small entry-level hardware these days is really low. I mean, if you look... Uh, small startups like uh, 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 Tilt Five, which just does does uh, you know an amazing setup for for uh, a kind of augmented reality for uh, board games, which is is very cool. And so it's little Pico projectors in glasses. Uh, uh, Jerry El- Ellsworth's work, absolutely brilliant hardware. And it's basically you know one woman, a small company, a small team, who's 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 doing uh, this this relatively inexpensive custom hardware? I, I guess you have a I guess you have a fair point. Um. Yeah, and so you know, and you see like one-off little consumer products all over the place. Will somebody build an entry-level laptop or OS or something that eventually displaces Mac and Windows? I don't know. Maybe. You know, I think it's it's doable. 
Um, really? Uh, it, it's just you're not going to start with a head-on attack. You're going to start building building something that that Apple and Microsoft view as a as a non-threat toy in the same way that that Deck viewed the Apple II as as a toy. You know, not anything that would be at all competitive with them ever. Have you have you tried this? I because I had never heard of Tilt Five. And when you mentioned AR board games, I have always thought that uh, I've only ever done one D&D campaign, Dungeons and Dragons, for the 1% of our audience that doesn't know what that <laughs> refers to. And uh, it was cool, but it was done virtually during the pandemic with my siblings and siblings' partners. And it was uh, very cool, but it was done through like a 2D <laughs> online, you know, like you're going yeah. through the board and whatnot. <laughs> and it's, I think... You get a lot more out of having like a real board or if you go to a game store and you have one of those sort of like, you know, uh, not battlefields or whatever. Have you, you have you have you ever played D&D at a, at a game store? No, but I have been to uh, game yeah, stores. Tr- tr- trust me, having the online thing to like keep track of all the state is actually very convenient. <laughs> OK, but my point my point being, though, is regardless of if you're doing it in person with a dungeon master that is expert at, you know, moving things around, making spatially aware stuff or you're doing it on this 2D thing, the real like first like you know world-class experience that you want is this kind of ar thing where the the dungeon master has you know ahead of the campaign gone forward set this up of the different corners that you the different directions you could go and as the campaign unfolds you're just like you don't have to like oh the mist comes over you know sure the the dungeon master can narrate that but you know with the swoosh of a hand you know the mist actually like appears on this and you could do it virtually everyone has a set of glasses you know they're just staring at whatever table and you so know, I want to use my imagination it's like reading a book so like you know movies are nice but sometimes one wants to read a book all right Bryce is not invi- invited to the future <laughs> uh, Dungeons and Dragons campaign that I will have using this Tilt Five technology but I I went to this site and as soon as you said that I was like wait is there a company that already has the hardware to do this and sure enough they've got like a little a demo of it doesn't show a D campaign but exactly this kind of thing where everyone's got a little controller and they're playing these little fun games anyways this is a long-winded of like this is something that's been in the back of my head of like the, this future technology would be awesome have you used this and do you know if like it's actually at the state where you can do this kind of stuff oh yeah so so this is the tilt five stuff is actually jerry's you know second generation be sure to tune in next year when we finish part three of our three-part conversation with Sean Parent about Tilt 5, augmented reality, and more. And be sure to check your show notes either in your podcast app or at adsbthepodcast.com for links to anything we mentioned in today's episode, as well as a link to a GitHub discussion where you can leave comments, thoughts, and questions. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed and have a great day. Low quality, high quantity. That is the tagline of our podcast. It's not the tagline. Our tagline is chaos with sprinkles of information.